Last week I heard that one of my colleagues, a Presbyterian minister, had raided the stables of his city's mounted police to steal, no, not a donkey for his church's Christmas pageant, but rather what you might clean up off the stable floor. And I say what you might clean up because it wouldn't be me. (laughs) His idea was that the aroma, the bouquet of this artifact in the sanctuary would add some authenticity to the poverty, the messiness, the chaos of a birth in a stable. Chief among my fears about this stunt would be the way too obvious jokes that are made possible, comparing the pageant or his ministry or the church or whatever to, well, you get the point. Besides the way I see it, the real mess and the confusion and the complexity of the Christmas story has to do with the human heart, not stable odors. Today we visit the other Christmas story, Matthew's Christmas story. The trip to Bethlehem for the census, no room at the inn, the manger, the angels and shepherds, all that takes place in Luke's gospel. And Mary is definitely the star of that show. In Matthew's gospel, however, the spotlight is on Joseph. It is a more adult story. It doesn't lend itself quite as easily to a children's Christmas pageant script, not without losing what matters. However, to get there, we need to get past a controversial doctrine that jumps out at us in the very first verse that that, uh, Alice read. Many people believe in the virgin birth, even to the extent that if someone says it may not be true, they're personally offended. Their faith may even be challenged, because they think, if that story isn't a fact, then how can you trust anything else in the Bible? There are also many who don't believe it, who think that those who do are clinging to a silly myth. Their faith may even be challenged because they think, how can anyone believe in a religion that asks you not to use your brain? I want to get beyond all this, so I'll say three things about the virgin birth. First, esteemed biblical scholars and theologians disagree about it. They do agree that it serves to tie Jesus' birth to the Isaiah passage that Matthew quotes in today's scripture, or at least to the Greek translation of that passage, which translates young woman as virgin. Second, I believe, along with the angel in Luke's version of the Christmas story, that nothing is impossible for God. And third, Whether you believe in the virgin birth, whether you believe it's fact or myth, isn't nearly as important as understanding the point, which is that in Jesus, God was doing something completely new. Neither Mark, nor John's gospel, nor the Apostle Paul in all his letters thought that it was important enough to mention the virgin birth, or any birth for that matter. And this tells us that different communities of believers were able to preach and write about Jesus without making the virgin birth an article of faith about him. So with that messy question moved aside, let's turn to Joseph and his mess. Elsewhere in scripture, people refer to Jesus as Joseph's son. This relationship is very important to Matthew, who wrote his gospel primarily for Jewish Christians. 
because it is through Joseph that Jesus is a descendant of King David. The way Matthew tells it, Joseph chooses to to be Jesus' father, and that is the focus of his Christmas story. Nazareth was a small town. Joseph probably noticed Mary among the marriageable girls and asked her parents for her hand in marriage. He brought a gift, maybe money or an animal. Maybe her parents consulted Mary, maybe not. But they reached an agreement. They all went to see a rabbi and in the presence of two witnesses made a contract. Mary and Joseph were betrothed or engaged or espoused, depending on your translation. It means they were legally married but hadn't moved in together and wouldn't until after the wedding, which would be a major event in the life of their community, a week-long party of eating and drinking and dancing. And then Mary turns up pregnant. A contract has been violated. A law has been broken. This was serious not only for Mary, but for everyone around her. The first century Mediterranean world was what is called an honor-shame culture. Honor had to do with your value in the society, and it had nothing to do with money or wealth, but rather with reputation, with your ability to do what you need to do to belong, to fit in, to interact with others in a way that brings you and your group honor. Keeping your honor was an ongoing contest. You could lose your honor in any social interaction. And to lose your honor was to be shamed. The difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is feeling bad about something you did, while shame is feeling bad about who you are. It's that I'm a loser, I'm a failure message. However much we want to avoid shame, multiply that by a really big number, and that is how much a first-century Judean like Joseph wants to avoid shame. If Joseph Joseph accepts Mary, who is essentially damaged goods, that would cause him shame. If he pretends the child is his, then that too is shameful because Mary is pregnant before the wedding. Mary's news is a huge threat to Joseph's honor, a threat to his very self-worth. Matthew says Joseph is a righteous man, which means he's a man who follows Jewish law. Joseph decides to divorce Mary quietly rather than subject her to public humiliation, and God's whole daring plan is suddenly at risk. This is all pretty adult stuff, right? Marriage contracts, shame, what you can and can't do before the wedding. And then Joseph has a dream. Do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary for your wife, for the child is from the Holy Spirit. William Willimon quips that while there are a lot of pieces of art that depict the Annunciation, the angel announcing to the serene Mary that she is with child, there is little art focused on Joseph's dream. Joseph bolting upright in bed in a cold sweat after being told that his fiancée is pregnant and not by him, and he should marry her anyway. Do not be afraid to take Mary for your wife, said the angel. 
I don't think it's possible not to be afraid in a situation like this. I think we make too little of this story and don't give Joseph enough credit if we simply hold him up as a model of what faithful obedience looks like, as though there's a simple formula. God speaks, humans are to act in faith in a certain way, the way Joseph did. Now everything is hunky-dory. It just isn't that simple. Not for Joseph, not for us. I don't believe we're supposed to think of Joseph and Mary as figures in a stained glass window. The whole point of the Christmas story that God is with us as one of us, is that God is with real people in their real, complicated, messy lives, their real feelings and their real fears. I can't hear this story without identifying with the sense of betrayal, the disappointment, the shame, and the host of other emotions that Joseph must have experienced, and the fear and hurt that Mary would have felt as they sorted out their complex relationship. One of the quiet miracles in the Christmas story is that on the basis of that dream, Joseph works through that all to make a decision. He lays aside his sense of right and wrong under the law and his offended pride, his ego, his wounded manhood, his shame, and chooses to marry his pregnant fiancée. Trust in God is not a given here. It is a choice. God's plan is saved because Joseph chose to take a risk, to brave uncertainty, to have the courage to be vulnerable. It is the season for Christmas movies, and one of my favorites is It's a Wonderful Life. Most of you probably know the story. As the movie begins, George Bailey is in desperate trouble. It's Christmas Eve, and a guardian angel named Clarence is assigned to convince George not to end his life. Clarence looks back at George's childhood and young adulthood and sees that he's a good man, a righteous man, who has sacrificed his dreams for his family and friends and the citizens of his small town, Bedford Falls. He gave up traveling, traveling the world and going to college as he'd planned when he inherited his father's business and loan business, or building and loan business, because he's the only person, it seems, who will stand up to the powerful and greedy Mr. Potter. George made a choice to keep the building and loan business going in order to protect the community of Bedford Falls and to offer ordinary struggling folks a way to buy their own homes. Then on Christmas Eve, George's Uncle Billy loses an $8,000 deposit, which is found and stolen by Mr. Potter, just before the bank examiners are to arrive at the building and loan. George knows that this will result in bankruptcy for the building and loan and criminal charges for himself. George goes home, and he takes out his shame on his family in a classic I'm going to make you feel as bad as I do moment, yelling at his four kids and his loving wife. Things go from bad to worse when George asks Potter for a loan and Potter threatens to call the police. George realizes how low he's sunk and decides to jump off a bridge, believing that he's worth more dead than alive. 
The angel Clarence stops him but can't persuade George that it's a good thing he's alive. So Clarence gives George something, something like a dream. He shows him all the lives that he has touched and how different life in his community of Bedford Falls would be if he'd never been born. But this dream is a nightmare. Bedford Falls in this dream is Potterville, a sleazy place full of as much greed and malice as Potter himself. The people that George loves are all dead or ruined or miserable. George decides that he has indeed lived a wonderful life, and he changes his mind about jumping off the bridge. The movie concludes with a joyful reunion of his family and his many friends pitching in to pay off his debt. Now, it's a Frank Capra movie, so of course it has a happy ending, but the story is peppered throughout with times when George Bailey has to make a choice, never an easy or obvious choice, and the outcome is not, at that moment, a happy ending for him. He makes the right choice, the righteous choice, not knowing the outcome. It's like the Matthew version of the Christmas story, because up until the last scene, it isn't a pretty fairy tale. But both the movie and Matthew show us God's ability to work to accomplish God's purposes through ordinary people, people like Joseph and George Bailey and people like us. People who go through all kinds of things, shame and fear and regrets, heartache, messy relationships, people who, when God is at work, in and through them, in and through us, can act courageously, even when we're cowards. Matthew tells us faith doesn't make everything lovely and civilized and tied with a ribbon. Instead, faith takes a risk with no guarantees and trusts God with the rest. Joseph, an ordinary man, worked through his cold sweat, took a risk, and Jesus grew up with Joseph as his dad. Where did Jesus come up with the idea that people are more important than the laws you've been taught your whole life? That our worth is measured by God's extravagant love for us, not by other people's opinions? Who was Jesus' male role model for the vulnerability and courage that we see again and again in his ministry? Joseph couldn't see any of this when he said yes to the angel. He couldn't know that some of Jesus' best teaching would be shaped by his own experience of an earthly, loving father. He didn't have any idea that his son would tell his disciples to talk about God with the tender, personal address of Abba, or Daddy. We don't need stable odors to remind us that life is messy and sometimes difficult, sometimes painful. We can't see how our struggles will unfold or how our choices will impact others. We can trust that God is with us. We can trust that God comes through ordinary mixed-up people in order to save ordinary mixed-up people. And that God comes through a birth like 
all the millions of other births in the world to show us that when we act with forgiveness and hope and trust, well then, the world changes. It surely did for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And it does every other time, too. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.